0: This is uh, chapter 16, uh, one, the first of four chapters about uh, stream entry. So, uh, this is called Sotapanna, the spiritual turning point. And uh, this section is called Entering the Stream. In this section, we will look at the various attributes leading to stream entry a picture will emerge that allows us to recognize stream entry as accessible, practical, and desirable. The mind will then be enabled to incorporate stream entry into its view and to let it define the direction of aspiration, allowing the heart's desire for freedom to be fulfilled. The following sutta gives a sense both of what someone does to become a sotapanna and of what it means to be a sotapanna. And so this is from uh, section 55 of the Connected Discourses, the Sotapati Vaga, the Connected Discourses about Stream Entry. Then the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. The Blessed One then said to him, Sariputta, this is said, a factor for stream entry, a factor for stream entry. What now, Sariputta, is a factor for stream entry? And when it says factor, it means uh, essentially a condition that that conduces to it, or a condition that leads to it, or supports it, or or helps it to, to happen. What now, Sariputta, is a factor for stream entry? Association with superior persons, Venerable Sir, is a factor for stream entry. That's uh, Sapurisa Sangseva. Hearing the true Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Sadhamma savanā. that is in Pali. Careful attention is a factor for stream entry. Yoniso Manasikara. And practice in accordance with the Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Dhammanu dhamma Patipata that's the fourth one. Good, good Sariputta. Association with superior persons, Sariputta, is a factor for stream entry. Hearing the true Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Careful attention is a factor for stream entry. Practice in accordance with the Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Sariputta, this is said, the stream, the stream. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? <coughs> so some of you might be wondering, all well, this talk about stream entry, what's the stream that's being talked about entering? Maybe you didn't wonder, but anyway. Here it comes. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? The noble eightfold path, Venerable Sir, is the stream. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Good, good, Sariputta. This noble eightfold path is the stream. That is to say, right view and so forth, right concentration. Sariputta, this is said, a stream enterer, a stream enterer, What now, Sariputta, is a stream-enterer? One who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream-enterer. This venerable one of such and such a name and clan. Good, good, Sariputta. One who possesses this noble eightfold path is a stream-enterer. This venerable one of such a name and such a clan. So, um, this is... uh, It's kind of rare that... uh, this definition is is given. Uh, the The term stream entry sotapatti sotapanna is quite common, but uh, it's uh, quite rare that uh, there's a definition of what the, the word the stream is referring to. Uh, but it's the, uh, as he says, one who quote unquote possesses the noble eightfold path. So that's. Uh, you can say possessing meaning embodying or one whose uh, you know, actions and views, attitudes are in, are in accordance with the <coughs> the Noble Eightfold Path. So then uh, Ajahn Pasno, who's written this section, he goes into each of those four factors uh, supportive of stream entry one by one. And um, so that uh, and explains uh, how they... Uh, um, how they are formed and the different teachings in association with them. The um, uh, but before going into the the detail, one of the the frequently asked questions is uh, uh, practicing dhamma in accordance with dhamma. Dhammanu dhamma anu dhamma padipada pada. Uh, so people often uh, ask the question, well, surely if you're practicing, it must be you you know you're practicing the dhamma. So how can that not be? in accordance with Dhamma. You know, like it's, that's what you're doing, is you're practicing the Dhamma. And so what it's um, pointing to, and we'll get onto that in more detail later on, but just to, to sort of, uh, address that now, it's like we can think that we're practicing the Dhamma, <coughs> so we can sort of do Dhamma-like activities, like sitting still in the temple for long hours, or walking up and down, doing walking meditation, studying scriptures, or um, holding views about uh, Buddhist teachings, uh, Buddhist traditions, and such like and so we can call it practicing the dhamma i am being a, a, a good uh, upasaka or upasika uh, i'm a, i'm being a good monk here and so that we can we can take hold of the ideas of uh, practice or the forms but yet um, not be doing that in accordance with dhamma so you have a lot of like uh, wrong view ditti, uh, uh, wrong kinds of concentration samadhi, and so forth that are, are talked about quite um uh, thoroughly in various different places. So you can have wrong concentration or, or wrong view. So that just because you think you're practicing the Dhamma, doesn't mean that you actually are practicing the Dhamma. Oops. <laughs> oh dear. And, and so uh, that's why the, the fourth factor is practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. So not just having the idea of, uh, I'm following the instructions, I'm doing what I was told, or this is, uh, uh, this is what I think is good practice, but the, the actuality of that being in, a, in accord with, with uh, dhamma itself. So there, there was uh, a, a, uh, a very common example that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would talk about was when uh, he was a young monk, he got very upset about uh, another bhikkhu who was living in Wapapong, and this monk was very uh, kind of extrovert and loud, and, and his speech was very coarse, he used quite bad language, and, and um, he couldn't understand. This monk was, was really uh, ha- had a big impact on other people living in the monastery. And, and so the young Ajahn Sumato, Bhikkhu Sumato couldn't understand why Lumpo Cha never scolded him or corrected him or, or set him straight. And he's like, Why doesn't Lumpo say something? This is outrageous. This monk is so kind of rude and coarse and loud. And You know, he, this is ridiculous. Why doesn't he do something? And so um, rather than asking Lumpur Cha, why he wasn't saying anything, he, um, uh, according to his to Lumpur Sumedho's own story, he waited until Ajahn Chah was away and then brought it up at a sangha meeting. Like we, every two weeks we have our recitation of the rules and the, whoever's the, the senior person says, has anyone got any sangha business to discuss? And so um, even though uh, Lumpur Sumedha was very junior at the time uh, when the, the senior monk asked that question, he said, well, actually I have. And so he, he uh, and even though the, the loud mouthed and uh, noisy monk was there, uh, and in Thai culture, uh, it's a very non confrontational culture, so you don't sort of insult people to their face, or even if you are upset with people, you, <clears throat> you don't express it to their face, you address it to the person sitting next to them. <laughs> you find some kind of roundabout way of, of expressing your, your displeasure. But anyway, he brought it up, and the, the monk was sitting right there, like, you know, this monk. And then, uh, and the point was that he, he had all of his evidence that the young uh, Ajahn Sumato had, you know, that on this on, on this occasion he spoke to uh, Ajahn Liam like this, on this occasion he spoke to Lumpur child like this, on this occasion he spoke to Ajahn Chu like this, or these lay people came to visit, and he spoke, he said this and this and this. And all of his facts were correct, you know, he he was, he didn't misquote anybody or misrepresent everything and so he uh, and so he brought all this up and said you know this is uh, this monk should be scolded or should correct his behavior and all the time naturally the bhikkhu in question was looking at the floor and and uh, looking very embarrassed and and uh, and so then at the end predictably I think lumpo Liam was the, the senior monk while Adam Char was away and uh, John Liam said well okay duly noted we'll uh uh, this can be brought to Lumpur's attention when he gets back and that was it you know no more discussion and so then within a day or two that the the mouthed monk had scooted away and left Wapapong and disappeared and anyway um after some time Ajahn Chah came back he'd been visiting some branch monasteries and, and of course word reached him very very quickly about what had happened and how this uh, uh, you know the 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 american monk had you know, the, <laughs> scolded this and uh, shamed this other, other bhikkhu in public. And, um, and so then Ajahn Chah waited for a, an appropriate moment and called the young uh, Ajahn Sumedho aside and said, and said to him, you know, Sumedho, you really, did, uh, you really did something wrong there. It was really badly done on your part. Because uh, do you really think I didn't know that he was so uh, um, rude and loudmouthed and... And course, you know, did, did you really think I wasn't aware of that? He said, you know, he'd been thrown out of every monastery he'd, been, he'd ever been in because people couldn't stand him. This was the last place he could live because I was making uh, making room for him. Now I don't know where he's going to go or, or whether he can survive as a monk because you've closed the door on him here. He can't stay here now. And so that's that's on you, tomato <laughs> <laughs> and And he said that even that he said uh the expression he used in Thai was bark barp, the j d. His mouth is evil, but his heart is good." And he said, "You know now he, he can't live here, and so you you have to take on the the karmic responsibility of that. and he said that, uh, you were you were right in fact." but wrong in Dhamma. Tuk nai kwam ching de pit nai So like it was, you were correct, you know, your facts were correct, but you were completely out of order. <laughs> what you were doing wasn't in accordance with, with Dhamma. And so that, that little phrase, being right in fact but wrong in Dhamma, just put that on your fridge and, uh, you know, and have that as a, a reminder, because it's so easy. Uh, when you're full of your own rightness, you know that someone that has upset you, or that they've got a political opinion that you don't like, or they're your ex-partner, or the soon-to-be ex-partner, <laughs> your old ajahn, yeah, that there's uh, you've got this whole list of things that are wrong with them, and uh, even though your facts may be correct, you can and you can justify your your opinion what what you don't notice is that the the motivation is like i hate you you're wrong you're bad and if you were different i would be happy and i'm you know, and i'm not happy and it's your fault that there's a uh, the the attitude behind it is 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 uh, contentious and and biased and and uh, not based on dumb at all even though i <coughs> say so, you're bad and you're wrong and you're stupid because what you're saying is uh, doesn't accord with Theravada Buddhism, or that you are you, you're slandering my, my beloved teacher, or um, you did something that hurt me, you lied to me, or cheated me, cheated on me, and some, such like. <clears throat> that the it, in a way that the the rightness of the fact masks the, the wrongness of the attitude. So the more you can back up your complaint <laughs> with reliable information the more it can screen the fact that your, the heart is really out of uh, out of accord with Dhamma. So uh, this Dhamma-nu-Dhamma-Patipadā is a really significant principle, so that it's not just... Um, and particularly because we're such an opinionated society, we tend to believe our opinions. You know, if we have an idea or an attitude, we assume that it's true. And then we can take our truths and then... <laughs> Uh, even on very refined subjects, and then sort of attack each other in very um, negative or harmful or, or self-centered ways. And even though what you, you might feel like you're defending the truth, or you're standing up for for the, the right, or you're you're speaking up for Theravada Buddhism or this particular meditation method, that uh, the 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 attitude that's being brought to it is really out of uh, out of tune with, with Dhamma. <laughs> so that the uh, the significant thing then is to when uh, when you are trying to communicate when we wish to uh, say um to talk with others or communicate with others along with having that having our facts straight along with having our um, information reliable then there's also the 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 investigation needs to be there but well uh What's the? Uh, where is this coming from in me? Is there a sense of wanting to to hurt the other person, or is it, um, uh, is it just to, to vent my spleen, just to sort of blow off blow off steam and make myself feel better? Uh, what's the motivation behind saying this? Is is it wholesome? Is it beneficial? Um, and so that then that um, the attitude behind our communications uh, then is indeed in accordance with what is uh, wholesome what's beneficial what's compassionate and um, and uh, appropriate to the time and the place and the situation so i i, I have to it's a point i have to uh, explain over and over again uh, people are always asking um uh, about that and not just in terms of arguments and such like but also in terms of meditation techniques like uh, i've been using this technique for so many years you know why isn't it working or um, uh, <clears throat> and then I've been trying to get rid of my my greed hatred and delusion for you know uh, no matter how to, how how hard I try to wipe it out you know I still can't uh, still can't get rid of it and so then that that, that kind of um, uh, principle uh, practicing dhamma in accordance with dhamma is so often uh, is applicable so uh, I, I feel it and also Ajahn Pasana gives it particular attention here but I thought I'd uh, highlight that before we get into the, the detail of this. So to continue. The four factors for stream entry are an extremely useful framework for our investigation. One who desires to experience the stream of truth would need to develop these factors. They form the foundation for what is wholesome and are conjoined with understanding. The first factor, association with superior persons, sapurisa sangseva, allows one to have contact with examples of righteousness and sagacity. This association leads one on to following that same example. And then there's a couple of um, passages. The first one from the Book of the Fours in the Numerical Discourses. Monks, when you put your trust in a superior person, you can expect the following four benefits. Growth in noble morality, growth in noble concentration, growth in noble wisdom, and growth in noble release, liberation. And then the next one is from the Itiwuttaka. A man who wraps rotting fish in a blade of kusa grass makes the grass smelly. So it is if you seek out fools. But a man who wraps powdered incense in the leaf of a tree makes the leaf fragrant. So it is, if you seek out the enlightened. Also, it's uh, notable that the very first line of the Mangala Sutta, when the Buddha's talking about the highest blessings uh, that we do in the Purita chanting, Asevanar Chabalaran, and we do, I think we did last night chanting. Yeah, so we do the English version um, quite often uh, nowadays. <coughs> Not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. So that's like when the Buddha was asked to, to list what are the, the highest blessings for us, the the, uh, the greatest mangalas or forms of protection and blessing. You know, Number one, don't hang out with stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> Spend time with wise people. Number one, you know, that's sort of top of the list, is... Who do you choose to spend your time with? If you choose to spend your time with with uh, people who are selfish, greedy, dishonest, indulgent, then that's going to have its effect on you. If you choose to spend your time with, with kind, harmless, generous, unselfish, compassionate people, that's going to have its effect. And so that uh, sometimes it's not up to us. You know, you can't control who you spend your time with you know, on the London Underground or. Not on the m twenty five or people that you work with, but it, where we have a choice uh, the uh, the encouragement is uh, to choose to spend your time with people who are who are wise and then that, understanding that that has its effect and it's, it's it's kind of interesting that in the the list the word mangala means um, everything from a, uh, a sort of spiritual blessing it also means like a a lucky charm or an amulet some kind of protective um, uh, force, and so when the the uh, in the Sutta when we we recite it, it says you know this Devata came to the Buddha and said you know uh, what are the what are the highest blessings? What are the the, the most powerful Mangalas? You know the the sources of, of protection and blessing, and uh, and so the rather than the Buddha talking about any kind of particular mantra that's going to stop you from getting bitten by dogs or ever getting diseases or some kind of um, Magical charm. Yet the whole list of the the uh, of the thirty-eight blessings there in the Mangala Sutta are all things that you do and things that you that you choose not to do. it's all about uh, the choices that that we make, and so that uh, it it very much puts it back onto the individual. What uh, what the the source of protection is your choices. The, the things that bring blessings in, in our lives are. Uh, are the choices that we make, and and, uh, the, um, uh, and this you know, number one on the list is who do you spend your time with? Even within a monastery, you can make choices. Which are the monks or nuns that are wise and encouraging and inspiring, and which are the ones that, are make, that make you more confused or upset or agitated or <laughs> restless, not mentioning any names. So. <laughs> Who's he mean? Who's he mean? <laughs> are you talking about me? <laughs> I'm not looking at anybody... And other, other monasteries, yeah. Of course, every nun, every nun and monk and Anagarika, Samanira, Anagarika and Amravati is uh, flawlessly noble and wise, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Of course. But uh, if, you are in, if you happen to be in a monastery and you're looking for um, some kind of distraction, uh, or just you know, there there's ways you can find that you, to 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 hang out with people who are always ready to complain about the ajahn or complain about the, the weather or the food or you can recite your ailments together complain about your digestive problems <laughs>
1: okay.
0: when I, when i first showed up at the monastery in thailand i could there were certain people i couldn't believe how much time they spent talking about their their digestion <laughs> Well, these are Buddhist monks. Why are they talking about their guts all the time? I never, I never heard, it, and I've it never spent any time in my life with people who spent, paid so much attention to their digestion. How strange! But you know, if there's nothing else to talk about, nothing else to get concerned about, then you can put your mind onto that. <laughs> so even within monasteries, and so you know, in the workplace, even within the family, who do you choose to spend time with in your family or in your uh, your work situation in the, in the office or college or you know, the, the, uh, the place where you work. You know, who, who do you go and have lunch with? <laughs> who, do you, yeah, yeah, who do you make your, your choices to spend time with? So, the next example uh, from the suttas concerns Mahanama, the Sakya. There is no explicit mention here of Mahanama being a Sotapanna but other suttas praise him as having entered the stream of dhamma. He maintained his association with both the Buddha and the Sangha, and was sincere in his practice. What is also worthy of note here is that, in addition to the above-mentioned factors for stream entry, a stream-enterer relies on the Aryavutti dhammas as the foundation of conduct, conditions conducive to noble growth, that is, faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom. Those are called the Arya Dhammas: faith, virtue, learning, generosity, wisdom. As one has contact with teachers and good examples, the path of training is entered into and lived fully. <coughs> so Mahanama was uh, um, the the ruler of the Sakyans for some time, and uh, the it uh, was like a, a small kingdom, a principality in the Himalayan foothills, and so Mahanama was a, a family member of, of the Buddha, it's from the Sakyan family, and uh, so he was the, the, the ruler. And, and this particular sutta relates to him in that, um, that role of uh, leadership and being the, the head of the, the community. Thus have I heard, and this is from again from the Sotapati Vaga, the um, connected discourses about stream entry. Thus have I heard... On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans at Kapilavattu in Negroda's Park. Then Mahanama, the Sakyan, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, this Kapilavattu is rich and prosperous, populous, crowded, with congested thoroughfares. In the evening, when I am entering Kapilavatu after visiting the Blessed One, or the bhikkhus worthy of esteem, I come across a stray elephant, or a stray horse, or a stray chariot, a stray cart, a stray man. On that occasion, Venerable Sir, my mindfulness regarding the Blessed One becomes muddled. My mindfulness becomes my mindfulness regarding the Dhamma becomes muddled. My mindfulness regarding the Sangha becomes muddled. The thought then occurs to me, if at this moment I should die, what would be my destination, what would be my future born? Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. This is that the Buddha replies. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, right here, crows, vultures, hawks, dogs, jackals or various creatures can eat his body, consisting of form, composed of the four great elements originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to breaking apart and dispersal. But his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, that goes upwards, goes to distinction. Suppose, Mahanama, a man submerges a pot of ghee, like like a very refined oil from butter, a pot of ghee, or a pot of oil in a a deep pool of water, and breaks it. All of its shards and fragments would sink downwards, but the ghee, or oil there, would rise upwards. So too, Mahanama, when a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, right here, crows and the, the whole array of jackals and whatnot, various creatures can eat his body, But his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, that goes upwards, goes to distinction. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. Again, this is a a teaching that I find myself repeating over and over and over and over. Because uh, in the Buddhist world, you have this mythology of uh, the last. everything depends on the last thought moment. That uh, which you have not just in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, where it says something like, um, Oh, nobly born, you know, that upon which the mind uh, is focused uh, at the uh, the last moment of life, that will determine where a being is, uh, uh, is reborn, that, that will determine the destination of, of that being. You have in uh, commentaries and things like the uh, uh, Dhammapada commentary, numerous uh, instances where the everything hinges around what the mind is dwelling on at the last moment. And so, uh, it's very, very common that people w- will come and, and talk with me and say, hey, I'm really worried, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know the, or that uh, my my mother is dying and she's really confused, and that she's got this kind of um, deluded mind states, and I'm really worried, what's going to happen? Because she, she lived a good life, but, but now... Um, you know, she's got dementia and can't think straight. And so, the, um, uh, <laughs> is she going to end up in some horrible realm? Because because her, her mind is confused now and, uh, and she won't last much longer. So it's incredibly common that I'm asked these questions. I'm sure many of others in the role of, of teaching are. And so, even though there, there's a lot of mythology around that, you don't, uh, that everything hinges on the last moment, what the mind is dwelling on at the, at the last moment, there's not a lot of backup for that in the suttas itself. Uh, the, this is the, <coughs> the um, in a sense, the, the most significant place where the Buddha talks about that. And what he's saying is that if you spent the last 30 or 40 years uh, living in a skillful way, even uh, Mahanama is saying, you know, if, uh, if i 'm knocked down by a runaway elephant or a horse or i 'm um, in, in a state of of uh, uh, some fella has stopped me in the street and say, Mahanama, you've got to do something about the potholes in the road or, you know what about these new taxes? you know this is outrageous. How can you do this in the middle of uh of being um, sort of harassed by somebody and then suddenly you you die at that moment, the Buddha is saying the last what the mind is is dwelling on at the last moment is not the significant thing, rather what you've been doing for the previous thirty or forty years. that's what matters and so that uh, as he says, um, you know when a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, then you know the 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 crows and vultures, and jackals and whatnot can eat the body, but the mind which has been fortified over a long time. That goes upwards, goes to distinction. So when the Buddha speaks about it, what he says is, it's not just the last moment that makes a difference. So uh, I uh, uh, I feel this is a very, very significant teaching in that respect. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure where those other um, traditions have come from. Well, that's sort of added on later. They're, they're there in the mythology. But uh, when you actually go to the word of the Buddha on this in terms of Sutta, then uh, this is how how he puts it, and so uh, it, this is a, a very very significant teaching in that respect. So, say for example in the Dhamma, in the uh, Dhammapada commentary, there's a story of a, a, a very virtuous monk, uh, a forest monk, and um, <clears throat> when uh, <clears throat> when he dies. Then the Buddha said, and then, then the tradition, the custom, because in Asia they didn't have refrigeration in the Buddha's time, so someone would die and you'd, you'd burn them, uh, have them cremated within a day because the body goes off very fast. Up until very recently in, in Thailand, it was a, northeast Thailand, it was the same. Now they've got refrigeration, you can wait for a bit. But normally the, the body would be, uh, would be burned straight away like within 24 hours. And this monk dies, and then the Buddha said, don't, uh, don't burn him yet. And, said, okay. <clears throat> and then he said, "When uh, I'll tell you when we'll have the cremation. And then a week goes by and he says, okay, we can burn him today. <clears throat> and then uh, predictably they say, Venerable Sir, what was the reason? What was the cause why we had to wait for a week after that monk had died and um, before we did the cremation? And then in the story the Buddha says, well, uh, this monk was, was a, very, uh, a very good... Um, Diligent practitioner of the Dutangas, and uh, and so he um, <coughs> he had you know, very very uh, few possessions. He just had his three robes, but uh, he was very attached to his patched robe. Yeah, I also can I relate to that. <laughs> I like my patches. So he said, uh, as he was dying, the last thing he saw was his his uh, his robe. Folded up on the rail in his kuti, and so that he, uh, he focused on the robe and said, I really like my patched robe. <laughs> and then he died. And so, because of his attachment to the robe, then his consciousness gravitated to a collection of insect eggs. An insect had laid its eggs in the, uh, in the hem of the robe. And you, you get this is also quite common in, in Thailand you get little flies' eggs, sort of little cluster of them. Uh, on your on your robes, he said. Because of that attachment, his consciousness gravitated to the, those eggs uh, in the in the the edge of the robe. And if he'd been cremated straight away, because they would burn the robes with the with, along with the body, then uh, <clears throat> then because of the, those eggs being burnt up in the fire, then that would have been shocking and terrible, and the consciousness would have been locked into that kind of animal realm for. A long, long time, but uh, giving, letting it uh, uh, go uh, for a week, then those eggs had a chance to hatch, and those little insects they lived their life of a day, and then they passed away, and then the consciousness of that former monk has now gravitated up to one of the heavenly realms. So that's why we had to wait for a week, (coughs) so that. yeah, you know, right there you have a story, isn't it? of commentary, so it's not that long after the Buddha's time. But uh where because of that, you know, there's a you know a, a monk who's <laughs> lived a skillful life and is a you know dutanga monk, but because of that last moment of attachment to the the uh, the robes and gets born in the insect, you know, in the animal realm. So um uh, I don't know where these stories I don't, know, I don't know where these stories come from, but uh it it's uh, it's that kind of principle is not reflected in the, the suttas of the the actual uh, time of the buddha uh, itself so uh maybe it was a an earlier mythology that carried on or has come from somewhere else but uh, that's uh, uh i i find i have to repeat this sutta many many times to encourage people that, that even if someone's got dementia and they're, they're delirious when they die or coming up to the death then then <coughs> Either there's um, no no particular cause for alarm. If, of course, someone's lived an unskillful life, <laughs> you know, they've been kind of selfish and jealous and greedy and dishonest, then they should be worried, <laughs> appropriately concerned. But uh, it, it's not that, well, more often than not what people worry about is that a person's goodness will be sort of uh, overwhelmed by confusion or... or um, by uh, like a, a sort of last moment's stray attachment. There's also, as a footnote, there's an interesting phenomenon called terminal lucidity, which is quite a well-documented um, uh, experience whereby people who have got dementia, um, well, you know, Alzheimer's, very, very close to death, they become quite lucid. Uh, and it seems to be that as consciousness is no longer based on the body and the body chemistry, then the mind becomes, uh, as it's sort of in a way separating from the body, um, it becomes uh, sort of uh, clearer and more coherent. As long as it's sort of being scrambled by the body chemistry that is creating confusion, then there, there continues to be um, the sort of distorted perceptions and, and confused thinking. But as the consciousness right at the very end, in just in the last hours or minutes, then it's not uncommon for for people to to demonstrate this kind of what they call terminal lucidity. It's right at the very end. Suddenly they can say, "Oh, you're here. Thank you very much. I'm really glad that you you're around. Bye bye," and, then, and <laughs> they pass away. And that's that's what happened to my grandmother. And she had she'd been for about four years. She had been unable to communicate at all, and then uh, my mother was with her just the day before she died. And she knew she was, it was very near the end because she had a pneumonia and her, her, her breathing was obstructed and, so they, and they couldn't operate on her. So my mother had just gone to visit her. and uh, So there'd been no communication between them for about four years. My mother would go and see her every week, but my grandmother could, couldn't speak or didn't even register her presence. And apparently, my grandmother turned to her, looked her in the eye and said, thank you. And then she died the next day. So it seemed that uh, she was quite aware that my mother was there, and that she'd been coming to visit her regularly, and that she knew she was going. And so, <clears throat> it's also underneath that those layers of confusion, there can also be the capacity for, for clear thinking. But as Ajahn Chah put it, the, the monkeys are playing in the telephone exchange. You know that Back in the days when telephone exchanges had people, yeah. telephone operators plugging wires into sockets, this is ancient history for some of you. <laughs> you might have seen it in the old movies where somebody sitting with a pair of headphones, kind of, I got, I want to make a call to uh, to Edinburgh. Okay, I'll connect you. <laughs> Plug you into a socket. Yeah. Those of us who are over fifty will probably relate to that. So, Arjun Charles's image, as, as his own thinking was getting scrambled. And and he could not put things together clearly or coherently. He, he made this comment, he said, the monkeys are playing around in the telephone exchange. <laughs> the monkeys are kind of putting the, the plugs into the wrong sockets. So he'd try and say, good morning, and he'd say, blue elephant. Or something. <laughs> and he'd know, like, that wasn't what I wanted to say. But the, the, uh, the system was getting scrambled. So that, <clears throat> again, that's another good reason not to be... Uh, upset or confused or, or, or distressed by someone's communications at the at the surface level, just because they can't talk straight or they can't think straight, doesn't mean to say that the whole system has is, is uh, compromised. But it's just that there's a certain level of of distortion or confusion.
1: Mm-hmm. Sort taking you to the next
0: place um, would be related to that story, something. So that yeah, that's. I mean, that that's one of the kind of stories. <coughs> that is an example of that, but I don't. I'm not sure where those stories originate from because they're not really substantiated in the suttas or the Vinaya. It's sort of the later mythology um, c- carries that like You have in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, very similarly. But uh, the the Buddha Vachana, the, the from the from the suttas and the Vinaya, doesn't really back that up. So I don't know where it's come from. But any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay. Yes. Five, uh, the
1: one, uh, learning, uh, decision.
0: The Arya Woody Dhammas. They are faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. this learning, like studies and studying dharma, that sort of thing. Uh, it means education, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, it can be. Uh, I mean, that's my understanding of it. It means your um, <clears throat> your conceptual under, understanding of the world and, and life and how things work. So often, when it, it talks about whether people are compatible or not. <clears throat> the Buddha says uh, um if uh, people have the same faith uh the uh, same see the same faith virtue learning generosity and wisdom that they those are the sort of essential qualities then if if those are compatible with, between people then they'll be able to get along if they're not compatible then they they won't get along i don't think it's it's specifically to do with um uh, with Dhamma, but in that respect, it's, it's uh, I think the worldly quality of learning is inc- included as well. So that the the kind of education that you have, and the, the the way you understand the world, or the kind of framework for, for um, explaining and understanding your own life and the world as you experience it. There's that hand at the back there. Yes. Sorry, can I just ask about associating with why? So, same foolish. Can you swing? Can you fall into the trap of just like avoiding people that you don't like? <laughs> 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 Very likely. How do you balance that? Well, the quality of, of uh, wise reflection, yoni somanasikara, then that's the, the capacity that the mind has to explore and say, well, what's my motivation here? What's, what's driving this? You know, um do i just am i saying that person's foolish just because i don't like i don't like them <laughs> or, or is it something else and so the uh, the the ability of the mind to to explore and to reflect on motivation or attitude if you know you you know you also you get familiar with your own biases or that well i'm calling that person foolish because uh, he doesn't like me or <laughs> <laughs> or that um <clears throat> that I call them foolish because they're more popular than I am, you, know, and say, well, okay, and then it's through that kind of exploring and uh, and in a sense <clears throat> examining your own motivation, and then yeah, there isn't a fixed measure that you can use, but when you often when you you pick up and think, well, what's behind this or why do i um uh feel sort of off put by that person and often the, the the things that would be the most reliable measures are is that person honest or dishonest uh, is that person um uh someone who is who is compassionate or are they not are they um uh, is that someone who is who is reliable or not and so that um, the 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 measure um, that's easiest to refer to is that of morality, and that if someone is dishonest or is uh, say um, you know, greedy or is you know, unreliable, then the, even if they're, they're, they might be, they might be a might be very attractive personality or someone's very um, charming or they're very powerful and they're really interested in you. Say well you know this person's you know really rich and famous, and she she wants me to be her secretary uh, okay, <laughs> and that uh, there can be um say well there's, there's a lot of attraction there, but do I really want to spend my time with this person? Uh, another story that I often tell is um this friend of ours who is a uh, uh, uh corporate lawyer on Wall Street and she was a um uh, like an advisor and uh, uh, a legal advisor for this uh, big financial company, and the um, she said that the the boss used to consult with her, particularly because he trusted her judgment. He because he was he was incredibly rich. He was a very very um, successful company, and he was worth hundreds of millions himself. And so his big problem was was getting good advice because people were trying tell him things that would please him, tell him what he wanted to hear so they would sort of be in his good books. But she, um, she was one that he called upon because he, uh, he could rely on her judgment irrespective of what she might gain from him. She told this story of how um, they were uh, interviewing this or meeting this client for lunch in, in New York and it, they were at a, uh, an outdoor restaurant. And this this person was talking about making a big investment in the company, something like five hundred million dollars. And that uh, <clears throat> if uh, if they took the contract, it was going to be like a big boost for the for the company. And and this uh, this friend of ours, um, she was gonna she would definitely be involved in drawing up the contracts, and and uh, she would profit personally from it. She was going to get something like one percent of the the a deal. Five hundred million. That's five hundred. That's a five million dollar bonus. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, they had this lunch together, and uh, and they said uh, goodbye to the client, and then the boss said, "So, so what do you think? It's pretty interesting, huh?" And she said, "We don't want to work with that man." He said, "Why not? It looked like a pretty good deal to me. What did I miss?" And she said, "It wasn't the deal. The deal. The deal." Um, Sounded everything that he that he said about the deal was was um, was very attractive, but did you did you see what he did with his glass? He said, "What do you mean?" He said, and he said uh, there was a fly that landed on the edge of his glass, the fruit juice, and there was a little um, puddle of fruit juice in the bottom of the glass. He said, while we were talking, he took his straw and he knocked the fly off the glass, down into the puddle of. Of juice in the bottom, and then he put the straw down on top of it, and he drowned it. While we were talking, did you notice that? He said, "Yeah, I did. Actually, that was kind of weird." That <laughs> was kind of. And she said, "We don't want to work with a man who would do something like that." And he kind of looked at her and said, Are "You sure?" And she said, "Yeah, we don't. We don't want to work with someone like that." Okay. And so, uh, so she just said cheerio to five million dollars on the strength of one fly and that's like she uh because of that sense of if that person would be so uh casual cavalier about the the life of a of an insect that probably the other people that he works with <laughs> get treated in the same way <laughs> but just uh, watch them squirm for the sake of and so that that uh uh and that uh, is a, a a very helpful story, and uh, and also then when you remember that part of you might think that was five million dollars, I could have used that, <laughs> but part of you says, oh, I'm glad I did that. That's that's good to remember, and there's a, a nobility there that is a a delight to the heart, and that's far more valuable than. Uh, Five million dollars.
1: Yes. One of the the Buddha said you have the ten or fifteen like talisman or something. She said protection. Mm-hmm. So that was one of them. I recognised. Yes. No. We were talking before about uh, the Buddha said something about uh, of <laughs> having a lucky
0: charm mangalas yeah, yeah. Is that manga? um <clears throat> well to um to choose to live virtuously and uh, to um to be um uh, to be say uh, committed to the uh, qualities of of harmlessness i can't remember the whole you know, every the content of every verse off the top of my head, sort of racing through. But uh, certainly the um, um, that behaving respectfully in relationship to all other beings is one of the the I, I think it's uh,
1: working
0: in ways that harm no being. That's right. There you go. Thank you. I knew there was one in there. Living in ways that harm no being.
1: Yes. yes. So that's the protection for, them, for sure. yeah. the individual.
0: The lawyer. Yeah. That was so long ago. And one of the, um, also in terms of Sila, the, the Buddha talks about the five precepts. He calls them the Mahadana, the great gifts. So oftentimes we think of Sila as being rules that tell you you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, can't, you can't do that. And they're, they're perceived as restrictions. But there's this particular sutta where he calls them the, the five mahadana, the great gifts. And then sila is talked about in terms of, of give the, 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 because what they give is fearlessness. So if you, if you refrain from harming any living being, you give uh, incalculable, immeasurable freedom from fear for other, other beings. And you also bring to yourself freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety. But for yourself. And <clears throat> so that other beings don't need to be afraid of you. So and each of the five precepts he goes through that so the one who's um doesn't steal things, then other people other beings don't have to be afraid of their property or their their, their space being invaded or being taken advantage of. So it's a um, it's not often that we think of sila as a kind of generosity, but but it is. And also he says that abhayadana the giving of fearlessness is a, a superior kind of giving than the giving of material gifts. That uh, yeah, Amisadana is the giving of material of, uh, offerings. Then superior to that is Abhayadana, the giving of fearlessness. And then superior to that is Dhammadana, or the giving of the Dhamma. Sabadana, Dhammadana, Jinati. like So that the giving of Dhamma is the, the highest kind but they're giving a fearlessness like if you keep the precepts it's like uh, so the the monastery environment depends on that that the everyone who's staying here living here lives on the eight precepts so that uh, you, you know no one's going to steal anything from you no one's going to harm you no one's going to flirt with you no one's going to try and get anything from you so that means that if you're here this is great, Yeah, you know. I don't have to. I don't have to hide my bag under my seat. I don't have to look attractive. I don't have to try and not look attractive. <sighs> don't have to worry about what my hair is like today. It's a. It's a space of it's like a zone of safety, and ease, and so that, and everyone who's in, in, in enters into this zone, and they can. They can relax. They can be at ease. It's a, it's like a giving of fearlessness. You, you can, uh, you can relax and not be afraid. Whereas in, in the outside world, in the general human jungle, <laughs> the animal realm, then you have to protect and keep your eyes open, and that uh, there's a lock your car and so on and so forth. And so that that's one of the the, the The essential aspects of a monastery is that because of that, there is that it's a zone of safety. There is that environment of security. Then you can relax enough to be able to watch your mind. It creates a very strong crucible, like a strong container, that so that within that, your feelings of love and hate and fear and desire can can really be explored and known because you don't haven't got to to um, Kind of invest in any of them. It's not emotionally loaded in the same way. The of, um, this, this, um, there
1: was uh, a situation when I was in Thailand, there was uh, a monastery where I was, there was a man mm-hmm. who was um, accused of having killed this man, raped a woman, and in way escaped an accident once well, he was taken from the And father and daughter, and it's interesting because um, he was searched, you know, by many, many policemen. But he actually came to the monastery, to the Anonymous Monastery. It's still very long because I'm the only one who saw him. But he came for um, to find a secure place for him. What happened? Nobody showed that actually, what he did, he did. But it was interesting to see this man coming to the monastery and looking for help, looking for safety. Yeah. So, just mm-hmm. sanctuary. A sanctuary, yeah.
0: Maybe you've got time to do the second factor. So <clears throat> the second factor for stream entry, hearing the true Dhamma, Sadhamma Savana, is central to realization. The canon describes numerous occasions when people, whether lay or monastic, attain stream entry through hearing the teachings. The following is an excellent example in that it comes after the Buddha gives a graduated discourse. These are rather stock phrases in the Pali and appear many times through the canon, but it's the first time they appear in the Sutta Pitaka. So this is in the Diganikaya, the long discourse is Sutta number 3. And as Pokhara sat there, the Lord delivered a graduated discourse on generosity, on morality and on heaven, showing the danger, degradation and corruption of sense desires and the profit of renunciation. And when the Lord knew that pokorasati's mind was ready, pliable, free from the hindrances, joyful and calm, then he preached a sermon on Dhamma in brief, on suffering, its origin, its cessation and the path. And just as a clean cloth from which all stains have been removed receives the dye perfectly, so in the brahmin pokorasati as he sat there, there arose the pure and spotless Dhamma eye, and he knew, whatever things have an origin must come to cessation. Yankinchi Samudaya Dhamma Sabantang Niroda Dhammanti. And Pokarasati, having seen, attained, experienced and penetrated the Dhamma, having passed beyond doubt, transcended uncertainty, having gained perfect confidence in a teacher's doctrine, without relying on others, said, Excellent, Lord, excellent! It is, it is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down, or to point out the way to one who has got lost, or to bring an oil lamp into a dark place, so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so the blessed Lord has expanded the Dhamma in various ways. I go with my son, my wife, my ministers and counsellors for refuge to the to the Reverend Gotama, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha. May the Reverend Gotama accept me as a lay follower who has taken refuge from this day forth as long as life shall last. And uh, as I, I mentioned a few times in these readings, the the Buddha. Um, talks about two different kinds of miracles so he says there's a the miracle of psychic power like reading people's minds or seeing into past lives or flying through the air or um, uh, such like uh, activities the Abiniha so the uh, uh, there's the miracle of psychic power and then there's the miracle of instruction and uh, he says of these two the miracle of instruction is the superior so that, uh, that uh, the miracle of instruction being that uh, someone can, can teach the Dhamma, can say words, uh, someone can listen to those. Hearing those words, then the heart can be transformed, can be, can be uh, uh, drawn to states of, of realization, liberation, just through hearing the sound of those words. So the Buddha said, that's, that's a real miracle. That's a more important miracle than flying through the air or reading people's minds or or seeing uh, past lives and such like. So maybe we'll leave it there and get on to the third factor later on. Any questions or thoughts, reflections on these?
1: Just when you spoke about for Ajahn Sumedha at the beginning with that story about the uh, Monk. And said, this was the last moment on that he could <coughs> I saw that there's like a link between the dominant and the Four Noble Truths. A Ma would have accepted the monk as he was, because he was suffering. Everybody was suffering mm-hmm. because of the monk's behavior. So I saw the Four Noble Truth to accept that he <coughs> is like that.
0: I think yeah, if, if he had reflected. Uh, at that time, if uh, the young Ajahn Sumedha had thought, this is dukkha, rather than this is a bad monk, then uh, it might have been different. But he was, uh, as he says himself, he was uh, very, uh, uh, very American, filled with righteous indignation. <laughs> it's a kind of national sport in America. <laughs> you know, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. It's, a, it's a kind of one of the popular bumper stickers there. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. So, being righteously indignant, so it's a it's a it's a strong conditioning. So he said, this is outrageous. He shouldn't be that way. We <clears throat> should do something. And um, so he was, the dukkha was out there rather than what his mind was was doing with it. And uh, so you know, he talks about it and his own feeling of regret, but also uh, how skilful uh, Cha was as a teacher, saying, you know. Uh, you have to acknowledge that that it was. Uh, it's something that you have to bring attention to. That just being right doesn't mean that you're right, <laughs> and it's so easy for us to take refuge in that rightness. When you've got sort of names, dates, evidence, your know, your watertight complaint about what's wrong with somebody, then you can uh, you can miss the 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 undercurrents that are there. It, it's, it seems to be it's interesting. I mean, not that I spend a lot of time in the in the academic field, but sometimes you come across uh, academics arguing the arguing with each other over you know, very refined points of philosophy. So sort of Buddhist uh, you know, understanding of Buddhist teachings and that they're the, the content of what they're discussing is extremely refined. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, some particular um, detail about the difference between animita samadhi and uh, uh, and formless jhanas, you know, and that you know this is very sort of refined and exalted teaching that you say that the animita samadhi is is identical to sunyata vihara. No, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. No, it's not. Sunyata Vihara is not the same as the Animitta cheto samadhi. You know, look, here, it says... And then you, you have this kind of fight going on It's like two eight-year-olds wrestling in the school playground, you know, emotionally, but the content is you know, animita cheto samadhi and sunyata vihara, like this kind of abiding in emptiness or the, the signless concentration of mind, right? which, you know, are they the same, are they different? And, it says here, you know, you're a fool, you're an idiot. How can you say that? And it's 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 weird because it's almost like it's sort of the more refined the topic, the more uh, it's brutal and instinctual the, the, the arguing and the the kind of uh, viciousness that can go on. I don't know how many of you are in academia or have been, but it's kind of pretty amazing the uh, the kind of uh, professional jealousy that can go on. And uh, that people who are sort of in the same field with the same interests and the same focus of study, and that they are that they're sort of in neighbouring offices and they won't talk to each other. Yeah. That big picture. huh? Big picture? Yeah. Or just I'm uh, not seeing that. Well, this is uh, this is painfully ironic. That what you're talking about is emptiness, and you're you're very very unempty. <laughs> <laughs> In your uh, all that uh, you know, you're a fool. You're an idiot. That's that's not uh, uh, <clears throat> your your interpretation of Advaita Vedanta is absolutely ridiculous. Your your kind of understanding of non-duality is absurd. <laughs> yeah, my non, my understanding of non-duality is far superior.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, then the, 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 wait a minute. You're talking about non-duality. So how can this be superior to that if we're talking about non-dual? if you follow the logic. <laughs> like your, your mind is getting very, very dual, like, I'm smarter than you, you're wrong, I'm right. That's a serious duality. But the content of what you're talking about is, you know, my version of, my understanding of non-duality is far, far superior to your, your non-duality. You know, And that the, because the the content of what you're saying is so sort of compelling and you can kind of make your case and quote your various suttas or upanishads or whatever that you're you're missing the fact that you're getting extremely dual you know in your kind of contending against another and that you've totally lost the spirit of what the whole teachings are trying to point to so that it's that is is, uh, Ajahn Chah was a genius at putting things very very simply (coughs) but uh, accurately And that simple phrase of being right in fact but wrong in dhamma encapsulates that. And speaking about being right in dhamma, (laughs) it's gone past five past seven, so we should wind up, otherwise we'll be late for the chanting.